This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Well, it's, it's been quite a week in Washington, hasn't it? <laughs> quite, quite a week. Crazy Town at the White House, detailed extensively in Bob Woodward's new book, an op-ed piece in the New York Times by an anonymous senior administration official confirming how bad things really are inside, and on the Hill, a rush to judgment by Republican senators on a Supreme Court nomination. It's rather heartening or refreshing then, at the end of such a week, to turn to John Kerry's new memoir for a reminder of what honorable, distinguished public service has meant to recall how someone who early on already had it made, nonetheless devoted his life to government work. Decorated Vietnam War veteran, assistant district attorney, and then lieutenant governor in Massachusetts, U.S. Senator for 28 years during which he rose to chair the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Democratic presidential nominee in 2004, and Secretary of State for four years during which he negotiated the Iran nuclear deal and the Paris Climate Agreement. His war experience on a swift boat showed courage. His decision later to become an outspoken opponent of the Vietnam War showed conviction. And throughout his political career, Secretary Kerry set an example for civility, for hard work, and for decency. His memoir, Every Day is Extra, is a big book, but one befitting a high-profile, accomplished life, a life of purpose. In the book, Secretary Kerry offers not only a thorough account of his long career in politics and addresses many personal aspects of his life, but also a forceful argument, presents a forceful argument for the importance of diplomacy, leadership, and collaboration in dealing with the challenges confronting the United States. These days, Secretary Kerry is a distinguished fellow for global affairs at Yale University, as well as the inaugural visiting distinguished statesman for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And as you may have read or heard, he hasn't ruled out getting back into the political arena. Who knows, tonight he may make some news. Now, for an author of Secretary Kerry's stature and significance, we have, as a conversation partner, a journalist of stature and significance himself, David Ignatius. If you don't read David's column in the Washington Post, you're really missing something. The columns are often filled, not just with opinion, but actual news about national security affairs, economics, and politics. And if you haven't read any of David's 10 spy thrillers, the latest of which is the quantum spy, you really should. They're not only very entertaining, but rooted in the same expert reporting that has distinguished David's journalism for uh, decades. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming John Kerry and David Ignatius. Mr. Secretary, that I think that's what we can safely call a warm welcome. 
from this audience, uh, and I know we're both grateful to Brad Graham for uh, bringing us together. I want to begin with a question that I know is on everyone's mind here, and that is, why did you write the anonymous op-ed for the New York Times? <laughs> See, now you know that's fake news. <laughs> so, you are, you're the, probably the one person in Washington who is not a suspect, so we'll, but I, I wanna ask you, because it's, it's on all of our minds, whether you, uh, as a former Secretary of State, a former Senator, are reassured to read that there is someone, there's a group of people who are seeking to, you know, in the, anonymous op-ed writer's words to keep the country uh, from going off the, off the cliff in this period. Is that, is that reassuring? Do I look reassured? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, let me, can I begin everybody, first of all, by thanking all of you for, for being here. Uh, I've had the privilege of being here uh, before, and I love it, and uh, I appreciate enormously what uh, Abe uh, Poland and Sheldon Zuckerman did in helping to keep this from becoming a nightclub. Um, so, it's a good thing. Um, secondly, I want to thank this guy. Uh, the high standard of national security reporting that he adheres to always is exemplary. Um, he is, I think, one of the very few totally credible, always reliable, and go-to people you've got to read if you want to understand what's going on. And I appreciate enormously, even when I didn't agree completely with his column, the quality he brings to journalism in America. So David, thank you for being here thank and being part of this. Um, and we're keeping him from his 93-year-old mother's birthday, so he's gonna run out of here at the end of this, folks. That, that is a fact. So, uh, finally, I want to thank Brad uh, and Politics and Prose. I prefer to say Politics and Prose than P and P. Just something sounds wrong with P and P, folks. Um, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, no, it doesn't make me feel better, and it shouldn't make anyone in America feel better. Uh, it is the confirmation of the fact that we are living with a day-to-day -day constitutional crisis that is not dealt with as one. And the reason it is a constitutional crisis is that uh, Donald Trump is obviously not all the time the President of the United States, even though he was elected to it. Uh, if people are stealing documents off his desk in order to prevent a decision from being made, if the Secretary of Defense is being told, do this, and it happens to involve an illegal order of killing the leader of another country. If he himself is openly tweeting on any given day, chastising the sitting Attorney General of the United States and chastising him for not using the Justice Department as a political tool to keep people from being indicted because it will affect the midterms. That's just a few days, folks, of activity. And, and so this, this is serious. This is really serious. I think everybody understands 
and everybody in Washington understands, which is what really critical, in positions of power, people know Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. They know this man is not a balanced leader. He is not equipped to be the president of the United States. And in my judgment, the Founding Fathers designed the Senate for this kind of moment. It was designed to be the steadying influence. That's why there are six-year terms. It was designed in order to uphold the oath that every single one of those people take to uphold the Constitution of the United States and to defend our institutions against all enemies, et cetera. The fact is that uh, this is a moment of extraordinary cowardice where uh, people in the United States Senate of the other party, of the Republican Party, are not defending the Constitution or the Senate itself. They are defending party, president, and power for themselves, and it's a disgrace. So let me, let me just uh, ask you to take that the next step. If the current situation is a disgrace, in which prominent Republicans in the Senate and elsewhere are failing to put the country first, what would you like to see people start to do as a sign that they're putting the country first? Well, now there's one very simple way to approach this. I mean, I've heard people talk about 25th Amendment, and you've heard the I word and other things. I think the worst thing we can do right now is be talking about the I word because it politicizes it, and it makes it part of a political process which we don't want it to be. And we don't know what, the, what, what Robert Mueller is, is going to conclude. We just don't know. And so we have to let this play out. But here is what Americans must do. There is a magic number I want you all to remember. It's 54.2. That is the percent of our fellow citizens who are eligible to vote who decided to come out and vote in the last election. When I ran in 04, I'm proud to say, we in both parties, turned out enough people to have a 60.4% turnout of eligible voters. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, it was 62.3% turnout. And the next time when he beat Romney, it was 58.5, I think, somewhere in there. The point I'm making is, you want to remember when the last time is that it was 54.2? Al Gore. Notwithstanding that Al Gore did get more votes than George Bush and was not seated by a judicial fiat, not by the counting of the ballots, and that's a fact. But we are where we are, folks. This book, I, I, I mean this, and, I, and this is not an exact, I, I promise you, never let my book fall down. <laughs> Terrible, I'll hold it here. <laughs> um, I really believe that uh, a funny thing happened in the course of the last week when Bob Woodward brought his book out. My first instinct was, oh my gosh, you know, Bob Woodward's book comes out the same day. My, <laughs> great. I don't know what you're laughing at, folks. But Woodward's book is a brilliant uh, job of journalism, of reporting, and everybody here knows that the lawyers at Simon and Schuster and, and his lawyers, nobody's going to let that thing be published without the tape recorded 
you know, conversations and the documentation. We just know this. And anything else when you hear them talk about, well, uh, you know, we we're misquoted or this or that, I mean, that's just a laughable joke on its face. But the point I'm making is that his book is the summary of the case against this presidency and the reason why we all need to be doing something. But what's the something? I believe my book, in the tracing of a journey of an American life through the political process, through the Cold War, the ending of uh, the, the Vietnam War, the opposition to the war, the peace movement, the women's movement, the environment movement, all of the things that are chronicled here through stories and in a personal way, that is the path, and I'm not kidding you. There isn't one single problem we face on this planet that every single one of you can't make a contribution to curing. As President Kennedy reminded us, you know, all the problems on the face of the planet are man-made, but they're also man-solvable and woman-solvable. And the key is, if you only have 54.2% of the people deciding it's worth voting for a president, we have a problem. Well, guess what? This moment presents us with two months before we have the opportunity for a major course correction. And that course correction will only come about if every single person here and elsewhere, people who are bothered by what's going on, turn it into political activity. What we did in 1970, when I first came back from Vietnam, the first thing that I did was not protest the war. The first thing I did was become involved in Earth Day. And we went out and brought 20 million Americans out of their homes in order to make a, po a powerful statement to the country and to the government that we don't want to live next to toxic waste sites that give you cancer. We don't want to drink water that's polluted that kills you. We don't want to breathe air that, that, that makes you sick, sends your kids to the hospital and so on. But until Rachel Carson wrote The Silent Spring and inspired a generation in the early 60s, nobody was doing anything about it fundamentally. Well, what we did after the 20 million Americans came out was we didn't just stop. We didn't say, wow, that was a great day. Everybody came out of their home. Isn't that wonderful? And demonstrated. No. We turned it into an effort to make the, the environment and all those issues voting issues. So and that's I, what happened. So I, I, just finished, I want to just finish what happened. We targeted the 12 worst votes in Congress and seven of the 12 were defeated in the next election. And guess what happened? You got the marine mammal protection, coastal zone management, clean air, safe drinking water. Richard Nixon was forced to sign the EPA into existence. That's what we have to do right now on healthcare, on education, on infrastructure, on our relationship in the world. I mean, there are any number of issues that we should be organizing Americans to come out and say, we want to reclaim our country, want a different America, uh, this is a great country, and there's no great urgency to make it great again because it's already great. What we have to do is make it fair again. And that's the effort of the next two months, folks. So before we uh, leave the, the question of, of the week, um, I, I, you said you don't want to talk about the I word, meaning impeachment, but I do want to ask you about the M word, which is Mueller. 
Bob Muller was your classmate at St. Paul's, you describe in the book. He was your classmate uh, at, at Yale. No, he went to, he, he went to, he made a mistake and went to Princeton, but it was Well, okay. uh, is he forgetting? He was also your, your fellow combatant uh, in Vietnam. You write in the book about how you worked together on the BCCI investigation. So you know Bob Mueller pretty well. You said something fascinating the other day in one of your interviews, which was that you think it's possible that Mueller has so much incriminating evidence on Donald Trump that he does not need to ask him written or oral questions. And I want to ask you to focus on that issue and tell us a little bit about Mueller as you know him. Well, let me, let me deal with Bob Mueller first. He's a terrific uh, public servant, is, is a professional, a professional professional. Uh, he's serious, a serious person. He doesn't cotton to tomfoolery. He's a, he's a um, get-the-job-done business-like person. Uh, you haven't seen him because that's Bob Mueller. Uh, he, he's not a somebody who's going to push himself out there. I think he, he thought he was retiring. I, I saw him in the Justice Department as he was leaving, and, and uh, he and his wife were ready to go off and uh, relax. Um, uh, I guess that didn't work out. Didn't work out. But Bob, uh, you know, we played soccer, hockey, and lacrosse together for four years. Uh, he was captain of my hockey team. He was, uh, you know, he was a forward, he played a center or wing, and he was always terrorizing the defense, and I'm sure he's terrorizing the defense right now. <laughs> but I, I used to be a prosecutor. I prosecuted for a number of years. I, ran, I had the privilege of running one of the largest district attorney's offices in the country, and I loved the job. It's a great job. And uh, uh, I think that uh, what you learn is, you, first of all, you, you, you don't advertise that you're doing an investigation unless it's out there publicly, and that's a comment on another issue that has arisen in the last couple of years. But um, you, uh, I, think, I think that uh, we always knew more than the press would write. We always knew more than the defense attorneys knew necessarily. And in this case, Mueller has been collecting an extraordinary amount of information. I mean, look, Mike Flynn pled months ago. From a prosecutor's point of view, I look at the sentencing that is being recommended. His son didn't get indicted, and he himself uh, is being recommended, I believe, for a brief six months or something, I said, with probation or something like that. That's a big plea bargain. That's a big giveaway for a prosecutor. That means he's getting something. And obviously, Mueller has the right. I'm not telling you he does have them, but I'd be amazed if he doesn't have tax returns. I know they've been talking to the uh, Deutsche Bank. We know yeah, there's a new book out by Craig Unger that talks about House of Putin, House of Trump, that links quite approximately the sort of history of money and the casinos and the Russians and the golf courses. So, I, you know, I'd be shocked if there isn't a very long trail there. But it's not just Michael Flynn. It's 13 different people, I think. I think the number's 13, who have pled, uh, all bringing a different, shall I call it, discipline to the table. 
And I'm just conjecture, folks. This is speculation. I'm not confirming anything. But my judgment is uh, we, Mueller has a huge trail to lay out to Americans. And by the way, um, I remember enough about law school to know that if you're looking at, 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 at a criminal case, um, you look at this issue of collusion uh, when the son of the candidate who's also involved in the campaign in the campaign headquarters building, Trump Tower, is gloating in an email over the fact that he's going to get dirt on another candidate from an email and says, I'm going to that meeting, wow. Uh, and indeed, uh, the candidate himself is out there encouraging the Russians to release emails and attack Hillary. I mean, and, and plenty of Russians are floating around and being met one place or the other. That's prima facie case of collusion right there. So let's see what happens. Um, I'm, I'm not going to jump the gun here, but I think Bob Mueller will be extraordinarily thorough. And uh, I just think we have to hold our horses and wait and see what happens. So that's a, a powerful statement, a pre prima facie case of, of collusion. Let's, let's turn to your book. And I, I just want to say to the audience and to you, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, what, the pleasure of reading this, I, I covered you. I've covered you for, for years, was uh, learning things I, I had no idea about, uh, especially in your personal life. It's a very personal uh, account of how you grew up, of your family, of your first marriage, of your marriage to Teresa, uh, and it, it's just very honest and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and direct and, and fascinating uh, in that way. You have a reputation. Um, in politics, you had a reputation of the Senate as being a somewhat aloof uh, kind of guy. That was sort of the uh, book. As I write John in the Kerry. book, when 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 I went into uh, John Hopkins for my cancer uh, operation, I had my aloof gland removed. <laughs> so, well, it, it's yeah. it's been it's it's good for your it's good for your book. It's good to have the aloof glands removed. So um, it this made me wonder. What the, now you've finished your book, what the post, uh, Mr. Secretary, post book John Kerry is going to be like, how you're going to spend your time. I'm not going to get the, to the presidential question yet. I just want to ask about, about whether, how you're going to kind of uh, live life and be, uh, uh, you know, are you going to be the, the, the guy without the aloof gland? Well, I, I'm without it, so I have to be. <laughs> the answer is, yeah. Look, every day is extra. Uh, has a meaning. Uh, and I write in an author's note, literally one paragraph, author's note, what that meaning is. And, and, and I write about it being a mystery and a gift, about it being uh, a responsibility that the guys who came back from Vietnam, at least my guys, my, fr my friends, closely friends, and my crew, all felt this. We said it to each other every, sometimes. You know, every day is extra. Okay, man, go for it. And what it meant was that those of us who were lucky enough to come home alive, uh, as opposed to those many who did not, had a responsibility to, to honor their legacy by living a life of responsibility and always understanding that in the end, there are worse things than losing a debate or losing an election. 
the worst thing of all would be indifferent to the problems around us. So I'm going to continue to be an activist, because that's in my blood. I've been an activist all my life. My mom was the original activist. And I tell you a story about my mom. My mom, when I was, uh, I write about this a little bit, but when I was demonstrating against the war, and we just finished the week of the veterans camping here in Washington, challenging the administration, um, I spoke, I was invited to speak at the Capitol to a million people who were assembled in Washington to oppose the war on Saturday, May Day. And uh, my mom had driven down from Boston in order to try to hear me speak and be part of the demonstration. So she was positioning herself in the bottom of the mall, I learned this later, right down near the reflecting pool there, and there was a tree, and she couldn't see me. So my mom, I, I don't know what age she was then, but she climbs the tree. And she's up in the tree, listening acutely. So we all agreed to meet at a restaurant in, in Georgetown, uh, right off M Street, and we're sitting there, and mom hasn't, mama hasn't appeared. And so finally she drives up, and I see her drive up in the car. She gets out of the car, lights are on, engine running, door open. She leaves it in the middle of the street. And she walks in, and, and we look at her, and her pupils are kind of dilated. And I look at her and say, Mom, what's, what's going on here? It turned out in the tree below it were a group of very, you know, of a major hippie gathering, and the smoke was going up. And she was secondary, secondary high. Well, it's a true story. And uh, I had to go out and rescue the car, and we seated her. <laughs> but, so I'm going to take that as a suggestion of how you're going to spend the future. I asked that was the question. No, I have a lot of catching up to do. No. Um, actually, I don't. We're, but <laughs> that's another convention. Another confession. <laughs> so, I intend to, uh, I intend to work for the next two months to help guarantee that we have the course correction I talked about. Are you going to campaign for candidates? I'm going to campaign for people in various parts of the country. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, getting back into it reminds me, it, it's fraught with, with uh, I mean, you do have a little bit of privacy in the role that I've had now. But I read the other day InfoWars put out, uh, there was a good article on them today, but InfoWars put out that um, Hurricane Lane that was attacking Hawaii was split in two by an energy beam fired from Antarctica by John Kerry. <laughs> and I said to myself, how can you get something so wrong? It wasn't from, it was from the North Pole I fired it. <laughs> but, but stop and think about that for a minute. I mean, we are living in a, in a just really bizarre so time. So one of the uh, really haunting uh, things in your book is that it makes you wonder, made me wonder, if this uh, post-truth era, as we sometimes call it, didn't begin during your 2004 campaign uh, with the swift boating, as the phrase came to be, the attempt to destroy your record of combat service. I mean, one of the really powerful parts of this book is when Secretary Kerry talks about what he did in Vietnam. 
and all of the action that you saw and how you won your three Purple Hearts. And that story was just ripped. And as you say in the book, people lied about what you'd done, you tried to correct the lies, and they kept on lying. And I want to ask you, looking back at that, it's always been a mystery, I think, to many of us, why you were not able to fight back in a way that would have stopped that. We could have. I mean, I, look, I've, I'm very candid in the book, and, and ultimately it's my responsibility and it's my fault. And it's a, it's a, you know, I would have had to really turn my campaign topsy-turvy, but in retrospect, I probably should have. Um, there was a very big disagreement at the higher levels of a campaign, as there always are, about the impact of these ads. Polling was done, of course, and the polling didn't show that it had cut. Moreover, um, we didn't have money at that point to spend, to waste what people thought was wasting, because these attacks took place in August. And unfortunately, and I had no control over this, I write about it, Terry McAuliffe, who was chairman, and it was innocent. I mean, he just chose a time because the party out of power chooses its date first. And he chose the end of July for the Democratic Convention in Boston. But Karl Rove was smart, and he waited until the end of August for their convention. So that if I was in the campaign finance reform you know, restraints, which I was, um, I couldn't spend four weeks of money that I needed to get through November when George Bush wasn't going to be under it until the beginning of September. And so we had to say to ourselves, you know, what happens if the money dries up in October because you, you had a bad debate or you did something or whatever, and you can't raise money, you'd be out of money. So it was a decision we made, and out of it came an absolute resolution and clarity you cannot run a 50-state campaign for the presidency of the United States under campaign finance rules. I had to pull out of Colorado two weeks, three weeks early. I had to pull out of Virginia. As it is, I was the first Democrat to carry Fairfax County since Lyndon Johnson. And we came, we came within a couple of points if we could have stayed in and spent money. And that hinged on another critical decision, which was, do you go out of the campaign finance reform structure and you just go out and raise money? And after I ran, when Barack Obama was thinking of running, I wrote him a long memo and I said, do not, do not, under any circumstance, stay in the system. You have to go out. And he did go out. And the campaign spent about a billion dollars, cost about a billion to run, and that's what you spend. But you have to be outside it. And I regret that, because all my life I have been an adamant, huge advocate of campaign finance reform. I voluntarily, for 18 years in the United States Senate, never, ever took a PAC money check from anybody. I raised money from everybody else. And, and if I had chosen to go out, remember the flip-flopper ads? They actually used a, a sentence I said in West Virginia when I said I voted for it before I voted against it, because we fixed the bill. I voted against it, and then I voted for it in the end because we fixed it and made it a better bill, and everybody does that every day, but they used it very effectively. If I'd gone out of campaign finance reform and flipped and said, I'm not staying with it after all my years of advocacy, they would have accused me of being the supreme hypocrite and flip-flopper, and that would have been you know, much more effective. So that's the tough stuff about politics, folks. Um, we... Uh, but, but if, you, if you had spent the money well, here's, and gone 
toe-to-toe with them. I mean, the fear I think that we have is that the facts don't work anymore and that the swift boating of John Kerry, Vietnam veteran, was the first real sign of that. And that's what I'm asking you. It was Would alternative facts, facts David. It didn't just begin then. It began a little earlier, but it rose to an entirely new level within a campaign. I mean, those of you who remember the name Dick Vigory uh, and remember the Southern strategy, Richard Nixon, it began, so, I mean, it's always been there to some degree, but it rose to an art form in the 1990s with the Gingrich Revolution and then ultimately the Tea Party, and then with the Freedom Caucus, and today we're living with the hostile takeover of the Republican Party by Donald Trump. That's basically what's happened. And the sequencing of all of that came about because Washington was failing to deliver to the American people. And rest assured, folks, it's not reserved to their party. On the right and on the left and in the center in America, people are rightfully really angry at the dysfunctionality of this city and of the United States Congress. And that's why you're seeing this pushback in populism. It's because I had a professor in college who left me with an indelible phrase, all politics is a reaction to felt needs. I didn't know what it meant then. We all ought to know what it means now. If you feel it, it's a, it's, it's a reality in politics. And people feel complete disruption in their lives. The world's moving faster. We see industrial uh, revolution-type change sweeping over society, but it's happening at digital pace. People can't keep up with it. If you are caught in the swirl of the of the fiscal crisis of 2008, you're still feeling hurt in a lot of places. People have a huge mortgage, but their home is worth much less than it was, and they may be working two or three jobs to pay that mortgage. And people don't have a feeling they're able to get ahead. And women in our country still don't earn what they ought to earn in terms of equality for the same job as men earn. There are all kinds of things that are just frustrating people. And politics is supposed to respond to those things. So I'll just bluntly say to you, a nation that has 52% of its earned income going to 1% of its people is living with an unsustainable political equation. That's us, and we better change it. So I, I want to uh, ask just a, a couple of questions about your time as Secretary of State, and then I have questions we've collected from the audience, which I want uh, to, to turn to. But uh, in your discussion of your time as, as Secretary, your efforts to try to secure a, a settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, some of the most powerful, painful reading in the book, you note that when you got started on this uh, in 2013, in your words, the window on the two-state solution was closing. And we know that your efforts ended in failure. I want to ask you here in this historic synagogue with deep respect, in your judgment, what is the future of Israel in the absence of that two-state solution? So let me begin, if I may, please, by just putting into a context something that David said, because it's something you constantly hear repeated. Uh, it ended in failure, or you failed to get 
the peace process you were trying to get. Uh, I never viewed it as my failure. I don't view it as my failure now. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. In this case, we led two horses to water, and you couldn't make two horses drink. And that's, you know, if there's not a ripeness, one of the great realities of diplomacy is the word ripeness. You have to have a ripeness to things happening. You can beat your head against the door a hundred times or the wall, and, and sometimes you, just things won't come together because it's not ripe. The art is to be able to either make it ripe or know that it's ripe and harvest as a result. And we were able to do that in a few cases. We were able to make it actually ripe and then harvest, like climate change and the Iran nuclear agreement. In the case of, uh, in the case of Israel and Palestine and the Middle East, I regret to say that the fact that the current government has a majority of its cabinet members who have publicly said there will never be a Palestinian state is a profound hurdle to the politics of a prime minister and a coalition government or the politics of the country. And likewise, you know, Abbas, an 82-year-old leader, 83 now, I guess, not that well, uh, didn't respond to President Obama's offer, literally sort of just let it sort of hang on a vine because he didn't trust the Prime Minister of Israel, and they, so back and forth. It was a complete disconnect. And so neither of them, I don't blame one, I don't blame the other, neither of them were prepared to do what was necessary to make this happen. So they failed their people, I regret to say. And in the case of Israel, I think it has, I mean, I'm a huge Israel supporter. I went there in a wonderful trip I described in 1986 with 15 Jewish friends from Massachusetts. And, and I love Israel. I love the idea of Israel. I love the, what they've done. I mean, creating this nation with its technology and its, its uh, capacity uh, to bloom the desert and make things uh, grow and sustain its people is absolutely remarkable. It's a great story. But one of the things Prime Minister Netanyahu always said to me is, the Arab world isn't ready to grant us the reality of being a Jewish state. Well, I supported being a Jewish state. And guess what I did? I worked with the Arab community for a year, year and a half, and I got the Arab community, King Abdullah, all of them to come and agree that we would, we would uh, bring up to date the Arab Peace Initiative, which only talked about 1967 mines, and include in it the idea of swaps of territory. So we were actually able to promise Israel that 90% of the settlement, of the settlers, would be incorporated into Israel. And there'd be a swap of land that would go to the Palestinians, representing a fair exchange for that fact. Now, that's a solution to a lot of things, not the whole solution. You need security, you need other things. General John Allen worked brilliantly to put together a plan that would never take away from Israel its sovereignty or its own decision, its own ability to defend itself by itself, which is what Prime Minister Netanyahu always said he needed. So we were complete defenders of the right of Israel to defend itself by itself. I mean, everything. We've been over backwards. But we also knew we had to create a contiguous, viable uh, Palestinian state. 
And, and I'll tell you, folks, right now, today, as we all sit here tonight, the population between the Jordan River Valley and the Mediterranean is majority non-Jew. So if Israel is going to be a democracy in which people have equal rights, equal vote, equal capacity, I don't think anybody in this synagogue believes that you're going to have a Palestinian prime minister of Israel. It's never going to happen. So my question, and I posed this question in the speech I gave in December before we left, is how do you reconcile the Herzl dream, the dream of Israel, the Perez, Barak, all these people who worked for years to make sure Israel was a shining democracy. How do you make it a shining democracy, have this population that doesn't have a state, allow them to vote, and whatever, and still be a Jewish state? You can't. And I said very bluntly, you are either a democracy which requires two states uh, in order to be a Jewish state, or you're not. And you won't be a Jewish state if all those folks are incorporated into a one-state solution. I don't believe there is a one-state solution. I do not believe you will have true peace. And while this moment may be deemed to be pretty good for Israelis, they're making money, the country's running calmly, they're not under attack on a daily basis, and so on and so forth, but one thing I've learned in this lifetime I describe here is things change very rapidly. You know, when I was on my home, way home in 1968 from the Gulf of I arrived on the coast of California the night where for a few minutes we thought there might have been a Kennedy restoration to the White House and then boom. Robert Kennedy was killed. I heard it on the radio. It was the first thing I heard coming back on that night of June 5th. So things change. Martin Luther King, Medgar Evans. I mean, you know, what you see today is never what you can absolutely predict you're going to see in six months or a year. And leaders need to be sensitive and thoughtful about that because uh, this situation with Israel, uh, who knows what happens in the Middle East as we go forward. Might there be an explosion in Gaza? I mean, they've already had three or four wars in the last four or five years. Um, Gaza is the most inhabited square mile population ratio of anywhere in the world, has an economic blockade it's living under. It's not livable conditions. I don't know what's going to happen with all those people. What happens if young people suddenly start marching up to the wall in Israel holding signs they're 10, 12, and 14 years old, and they say, we want our rights. What happens if suddenly there's a new civil rights leader, like a Martin Luther King, who engages in civil disobedience and says, we want to change? I don't know the answer to these things, but I know they're all possible. And as long as there is not a, a commitment to try to resolve this issue, I think it's a, it's a, it's a question mark where it all goes. So, Mr. Secretary, uh, we asked uh, members of the audience if they would write questions for you, and I have a selection here, and they're terrific questions, and I'm going to lead off with one that allows me to, to finesse the question that we all really want to ask you, uh, because the questioner puts it this way. If you ran in 2020, 
against Trump, how would you handle his tweets about you? And I thought that was a pretty good question. So how would you handle that? Well, I'm not running. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm not running. I'm focused on 2018 and he's still tweeting about me. Uh, he's so, just getting, he's getting warming up. I think it's, uh, I, I, I think it's pretty preoccupied and defensive, if you ask me. But let me, let me come to something about this, because uh, I want to answer this seriously. I'm not, I just think it's a mistake, folks, to be playing with 2020 when the outcome of 2018 is so critical to what that playing field might be, what the dynamics might be. It just doesn't make sense. So, I'm not kidding when I say we, we really need to do this work in the next months. Now, why do we need to do it? Can I diverge? Because we're going to run out of time, and I want to say a word about John McCain and the work that we did in this context. Yes, but, I, but, I, but before we leave this, this question of, of Trump and the, and the tweets, he has taken you on. He's got a thing about you. And, he, you know, he, he's he, again and well, again. I hope it's the right why, kind of thing. So, the question that the, that the card writer posed is, why don't you tweet back? I, I, I just don't think uh, it takes you anywhere. You know, you sleep with dogs, you get fleas. I, I don't need it. So I think maybe that's, that's probably our takeaway line, Mr. Secretary. Um, let's, uh, if we can, just rather than reading from your book, um, just ask you, uh, Senator McCain is on all of our minds, just uh, say a few words uh, distilling. You had a special relationship with him. It was remarkable. Just say a few words about him. Here's the reason why I wanted to say something to all of you about this. Because what I write about McCain, what I write about what we did on BCCI, on Oliver North and Iran-Contra, and all of these things over the years, that's the answer to the dilemma we have now. The rules of the United States Senate have not changed dramatically in the last 30, 40, 50 years. They haven't. Yes, there's the nuclear option deal, and there's been a little bit of a change on the majority vote on judges or this or that. But the fundamental rules of how the Senate works day to day have not changed. What's changed are the people. Remember that. If you had a Speaker of the House of the majority party and of the Senate who together were really ready to lead and cared about the country more than they care about their chairman of committees and power and money, they would go together to their caucus and say, we've sat down with the minority leaders of both houses and we've all agreed that we have to defend this institution and we have to work more effectively and we need to get back to the regular order. Remember, that's what John McCain was talking about. That means that we work together. You're not punished for crossing the aisle. There's no ideological orthodoxy that is governing one caucus over the other. And, and it means that, you know, it's the people who make the difference. When I was first in the Senate in the 1980s, um, we used to go to dinner over at Ted Kennedy's house or somewhere, and, and you'd have Orrin Hatch there, and John Warner of Virginia, and Mac Mathias of 
Maryland and you'd laugh and have a good time and all make fun of each other, and, but we'd get business done. And the next day, you might have an amendment that we'd all get together on because of that dinner. And we, it, was, it was constructive and there was a sense of respect. All the way up until Tom Daschle was leader, it was unheard of for the other leader to campaign against the other leader. But this is part of the change that came in with the revolution in the House and, the, and, and so forth. And so what I'm saying is John McCain, you know, John McCain and I sat opposite each other on a plane flying to Kuwait. And we talked late into the night. And I asked him a lot of questions. And by then, we didn't know each other very well. I mean, he was the POW and I was the war protester. And he had come to Massachusetts prior to that to campaign against me, but he had the class when he came there. He never mentioned my name. He never took me on. He just campaigned for the other guy. And I'd have loved it if he didn't do it, but it wasn't an attack. So we sat there and I said, you know, John, tell me about your father and your grandfather and what was it like to be at Annapolis with this huge legacy weight on you and so forth. And we just broke the barriers. You know what came out of that? We both agreed that our country, which we both love, we both came to service out of patriotism, we, we, we knew that our country was still torn apart over Vietnam. And we knew that as long as people thought POW MNMIAs might be alive in Vietnam, we were not going to be able to move the dime, either here or there, in terms of normalizing relations and ending the embargo. So John and I literally did a pact. We said, we're going to work on this. We're going to try together to see if we can make peace with Vietnam and make peace here at home. And for 10 years, we slugged it out and did it. There was a select committee created in the Senate. I became chairman of it, appointed by George Mitchell. John McCain served on it. Bob Kerry served on it. Chuck Robb. I mean, we had you know, tremendous senators who came in to help do this. I went back to Vietnam maybe 25 times to try to get the answers. We, we said we would provide the families with answers, and we would do unbelievable things to try to be able to break down the barriers so people would have credibility in the work we were doing. And there's a section in the book, <clears throat> I don't know if you want me to read it or not, where <clears throat> at the end I talk about what we accomplished. But it's, I'd rather save the time for some of the let audience me just, questions. Let me just summarize it quickly. John McCain and I went to Vietnam together in Hanoi. We together went to the Hanoi Hilton. And I went into the cell that John McCain spent several years of his life in, sometimes in solitary, and we talked in the cell. And I thought to myself, how improbable is this? A guy who lived in this cell, who was a prisoner of war, who came almost this, you know, this close to losing his life here, and me, a guy who had a totally different kind of war and protested it, and they didn't like us because we did protest it, and here we are together way beyond that in order to try to accomplish something for our country. And in the end, the first thing we did was we had the single most intrusive, incredible, extensive accounting of any nation in all the history of warfare for missing in action and potential POWs. And, and, and we actually got answers for over 700 families here in America, we brought remains home, and they were able to have closure, and, and 
get their loved ones buried at home. And the most important thing out of that, we proved that you can be bipartisan under the most strained circumstances in honor of your country and for the purpose of advancing your country. And in the end, that's exactly what we did. We made peace with Vietnam, and we also were able to make peace with each other and with a lot of people who were still carrying the war with them in very difficult ways. I think it was extraordinary. I'm, I'm just going to read, you don't need to respond to this, but this is such an apposite, wise uh, comment from a questioner. What does it say about our country that we never have and likely never will elect a Vietnam veteran president? I mean, uh, just note, it's a very interesting observation. I, I note it. Okay. So, um, noted. Here's a, a question that uh, I know vexes you. It's one that we have, have talked about a little bit, uh, but I'd love to hear you respond here. Will the international world order that we enjoy today, I'll say have enjoyed, survive after this administration? In other words, how much at risk is this world order that we've known since 1945, 1948? It is at risk. It will survive, certainly, if we do what we need to do in the next two months and if we win the House of Representatives. That will be a huge step forward in helping it to survive. Secondly, it will survive, providing this is a one-term presidency. If it's an eight-year presidency, a lot will be up for grabs. Uh, that's just a big difference, and it's one we have to be realistic about. Yesterday, I noticed that um, uh, the, the league leader in Italy uh, joined up in the, so the alliance uh, with uh, Steve Bannon, which means that others will now probably leap aboard. And there is a great danger in what is happening in Europe right now uh, because of the uh, populism slash authoritarianism of uh, Bulgaria, uh, of Hungary, of Italy, we're seeing these horrible uh, demonstrations take place in Germany. Uh, we saw what Marine Le Pen offered France and, and the difficulties of getting things done. Uh, we see Brexit, which has spent this unbelievable energy of Europe on breaking it apart, rather than on recognizing the unbelievable advances over 70 years that have come to Europe. Uh, I, I said in a speech in Berlin last year that I wish the Europeans believed in Europe as much as America believes in Europe. Uh, and they need leaders now who are prepared to stand up and fight. They have the greatest rise of income, greatest rise of standard of living. They have the best healthcare returns of anywhere in the world. They've had unprecedented prosperity. They've come together with greater freedom and protection. The purpose of EU was not an economic purpose. The purpose of the EU was to stop Europeans from killing each other, which they'd been doing for centuries. And, and there's a whole generation now that, that where there has not been leadership that is putting this reality to their citizens. We have to strengthen it. It's critical. And Putin 
which is, makes Helsinki even more astonishing. Putin and President Xi have both been very busy pushing the narrative of this demise of the uh, Western liberal order. They want that. They love that idea. And in fact, Putin, I mean, Putin, uh, President Xi has been as outspoken as to say that this is China's moment. This is going to be the China century and so on and so forth. And by the way, if we continue with this abdication of leadership that we're seeing right now, they may make it thus. Because by going it, you know, with this strange policy of attacking our allies and our friends and rupturing these critical alliances, President Trump is in fact empowering President Xi and empowering Putin. And it's having a huge damaging effect on the choices that other politicians might make in their countries. So this is a dangerous moment, folks. And we need to be standing up here and doing the exact opposite of what President Trump is doing. We need to reaffirm the values which we organized around in the wake of World War II. And I'll tell you, most of the leaders that I talk to in the world, they don't sit there uh, you know, wishing that America would leave and worried about our presence. They worry about our leaving and they worry about our absence. And we need to get back to the United States of America leading on issue after issue in order to hold together values in a world which is changing so rapidly and in which you have two billion young people between the ages of 15 and 24. You have a billion eight young people who are 15 years old or younger, and too many of them live in countries in which they won't go to school ever, and religious extremists will grab them as young children and proselytize, and, and, and you know, you will see uh, great difficulties in providing for the security of our country. It is not an over there problem. There's no over there in the world anymore. And all these young people, by the way, have smartphones and they run, they don't have anything else, but they see on their smartphones what other people have in the world and what they don't have. And I think it just breeds a very complicated politics for us to try to manage in the long run. I saw what happens when we lead. We led in the South China Sea. We led in stopping Putin before he went to Kiev. Would it have been great if we didn't have him go to Crimea and didn't mucking around in the Donbass? Of course. But we did a reaffirmation program. We sent troops. We put $4 billion into a reassurance program. And we passed bidding, biting sanctions on Russia, which are still biting Russia. And, and um, it stopped, I think, made Putin reconsider what the next steps might be. We stopped Ebola in its tracks. We're on the brink of seeing the first generation of children born AIDS-free in Africa. Why is that? Because we spent $30 billion here in PEPFAR and put the people on the ground to try to make the difference. I think Americans should be proud of what we have done to make the world a more stable and better place. And the truth is, far, far fewer people are dying today in the world, despite the violence that we see, than any time in the last century. And we can do better than we're doing today. When I was in college, the severe poverty rate was 50%. You know what it is today? Below 10%. By the way, this is why I'm optimistic about what we can do, folks. We shouldn't be down in, our, in the dumps and 
crying in our teacups and so We need to have confidence in who we are. We're curing diseases we never thought we'd cure. We live longer than we've ever lived before. We have technology that makes life better than ever been before. The quality of life is better, notwithstanding the economic difficulties we face. If you're a woman in the world, you're pregnant, you're 50% more likely to live if you have a child. Your child's 50% more likely to live and go to school. I mean, we are doing amazing things, notwithstanding the hardships that we see. But come back to what I said earlier. How do you change it? We've tried every form of government there is in the world that humans can conceive of. Monarchies, constitutional monarchies, communism, fascism, authoritarianism, pure, I mean, you name it. We've tried it. Socialism, we've done it. And as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for everything else. So uh, we're past uh, 8.30, and I know there are a lot of people in this audience who'd love to get Secretary Kerry to sign uh, uh, books. Uh, in, in closing, I should just note, uh, there were an awful lot of questions that were basically like the one I'm going to read, which said, what are the odds you run for president in 2020? We, uh, people are thinking about this, Mr. Secretary. And what are the odds you would announce your candidacy tonight? So I guess we know what the, the, the odds are pretty slim on that. On the latter? Yes, sir. 100% slim. Um, but uh, I, I also note that the, the biggest cheers of the night probably were when you said you were going to go campaign uh, for candidates over the next couple of months. Folks, I, yeah. I kid you not when I, when, I, when I say, look, in 1971, 1969, when I started demonstrating against the war, and I write in the book, there's a letter in the book I'd love you all to read. It's a letter that came from a guy named Skip Barker. He was a lieutenant, JG, like me, and he was a skipper of a boat. He was one of my closest friends, and he wrote me to tell me that one of my other closest friends had been killed in a river. Um, and he wrote me a very poignant letter about how it unfolded and what happened. That was the catalyst. That's the moment that I knew I came back to protest the war, but I didn't know quite how or when or what. That just broke the dam, and I said, I've got to go out and do this. And um, we were taking on Richard Nixon, a very powerful and then popular president. In the 1972 election, after I had demonstrated in 1971, he won 49 states. A year and a half later, he was gone. We took him on. When I came to Washington, Richard Nixon and the White House tried to remove us from the mall, but they didn't dare in the end. We stood up and we took a vote on that mall late at night. How many of you want to stay here? And if we get arrested, we get arrested. Overwhelmed, unanimous. And they backed off. The police said they weren't going to arrest a bunch of veterans. So. There was an enemies list, remember? He was attacking the Justice Department. He fired Archie Cox. R Elliot Richardson re resigned in protest. This was a turbulent time. There were guns in the streets of America. Detroit was burning. Pipe bombs were going off. There were assassinations, as I defined them. And yet, we got through it, folks. 
I am so confident we can and will get through this. But you know how we got through it? I thought when I demonstrated in Washington, I'd never be involved in public life because protesting the war and being arrested was not a great you know, resume builder. <laughs> and back then, the country was pretty divided over it. But uh, that's why I take that lesson so powerfully, and I hope you will take it. You can always make a difference in ways. And the real ways in which America is strong is through our communities, the fabric of communities, people at the grassroots, people who knock on doors, who talk to each other, and who build the heart of what is community in America. It's a remarkable place, but it's most remarkable when people get off their asses and go out and work and make our democracy work. That's what you have to do. I think that's, uh, that's the right uh, moment uh, for all of us to thank Secretary Kerry for his service, for his book, and for being with us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.